Good morning. Um, for those of us, for those of you joining uh, online or streaming this a day or a couple days later, I just want to thank you for, for joining us. This morning we're trying to adjust with coronavirus and we're really thankful that you're just streaming in online. So thank you for uh, participating this way. I'm going to go ahead and take just uh, five, ten seconds to, to pray for uh, our community and the nation during this time. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word and to gather uh, even online. God, I pray that you would not just speak through me today, but Lord, would you heal uh, a nation going through something like this? And Lord, would you continue to minister and be with those who are out of work and suffering sickness and that they would realize that you are the God of all comfort and peace. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. We've, we've gone and are going through the book of Exodus currently. Um, and right now we're going to take uh, a very short break in our series of Exodus. And we're going to be looking at the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians Chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. It's a very, very well-known passage in the book of 2 Corinthians and even of Paul in general. Um, I really love philosophy. I've really enjoyed getting to study it in college and taking some seminary classes. But philosophy, there are different worldviews regarding philosophy and what that means and what philosophy is saying in terms of existentialism to other types of philosophy. But the reason why I really enjoy philosophy is because it's trying to ask one simple thing. What is the good life? How do we live so much so to flourish as humans? What is the good life? That is what philosophy attempts to answer. And that, I believe, is a core question that we as humanity are trying to ask. Perceived strength is what we're all looking for. It is what by nature we believe is the flourishing life, the good life. We look at figures like Tom Brady or LeBron James or other political figures or actors or certain people that we see that have notoriety or maybe they don't have notoriety but maybe they are a colleague or a friend or a family member and they look so strong. They look like they have their life all together and we envy them. Most of us, if we're being honest, inadequacy, circumstantial handicap, or better, better said, weakness in general, is not the good life. Weakness means that you've missed out, the best of the world has passed you, and that you are left on the side of the road, struggling with some deficiency in and of yourself. But what if I were to tell you and what if we were to look at the Bible more closely and see that Paul is telling us that the inadequacies, the circumstances, the insecurities, the weaknesses that you feel in your life are the very thing that God wants to use to make you most serviceable in his kingdom. We as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's character and nature and that Hebrews 1.3 tells us that he's also the model in which Christians should live. 
He was perfect in every way. He obeyed perfectly. He loved perfectly. He was perfectly wise and gracious. He is both, the, as Hebrews says, the very wisdom of God made manifest to humanity. Jesus tells us and teaches us how to live this side of eternity. The Bible says that his life is actually the good life. And yet from the beginning of his life, it is set, it is fixed, not toward a throne, but toward a cross. Jesus' target was the most humiliating, excruciating, and weak, embarrassing way to die. Which is why when we have crosses, either tattooed or necklaces, it begs the question, do you really know what that means in terms of history? That that is a death sentence. It is the it is a symbol of incredible weakness, a literal instrument to bring you to the most weakest point in your life, death. Not to mention that Jesus' life was filled with suffering, pain, sorrow, constantly taking on the burdens of others, never having a place to rest his head, as Matthew says. And he lived a life of obscurity and service. So Jesus' life from the beginning was oriented around and toward a cross. Jesus embodies the life we ought to live, the life that leads to flourishing. For God, the way to flourish is actually the way of the cross. It's the cruciform life. What that word means, cruciform, is just in the shape of a cross. The way is not toward outward strength, but physical, spiritual, emotional, social weakness. But this begs the question for most of us. Why don't we believe that? Why don't we believe that? Most of us Christians, if we're honest, we do not believe that the way of the cross, embracing our weak nature and our weak weaknesses at large, is the way to flourish. We either don't believe that that's theologically true, or we would say that that is theologically true and biblically, because we see it in God's word, but that there's really no way that that, embracing our weaknesses, leads to joy and strength. Certainly not flourishing. But the Apostle Paul has something else to say. We believe there certainly cannot be strength in my weaknesses. Yet at the very end of this passage, Paul says, when I am weak, I am strong. Where's the gap and how do we bridge it? What if our inabilities, our inadequacies, your weaknesses are what God wants to use in your life and in others We're going to look at what commentators say in the book of 2 Corinthians is the summit. It is what Paul is making an argument to. It's the very summit, the top point of this epistle. And I'm excited to look at it with you. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 10. And let's pray together. Holy God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for... Even things like coronavirus, which is so painful and has, is having a damaging effect on so many people. But God, you are, this is not outside of your bounds. God, if we look at church history, viruses, sickness, disease has often been around and often been in the church. And yet, God, you are no less sovereign and good and wise. So God, we As crazy it may seem, thank you for another reminder that we are from dust and to dust we shall return. And that our hope is not in this life, but that our hope is in you and in the resurrection. God, thank you for being wise, sovereign, and good to us. Lord, I pray that you would minister to those experiencing significant hardships because of this virus. 
And I just pray for our church community that we would be a people that doesn't run and shelter ourselves, but that, God, we would be in the midst of people who are experiencing real pain because of this. Lord, I thank you for Christ. Help us to live in light of our weaknesses today and forever. Amen. We're going to be looking at three things that we see in this passage. Paul's contextual weakness, Paul's gospel of weakness, and Paul's strength. What do I mean by weakness? What do I mean by the word, when I use the word weakness? If there were one broad explanation of weakness, it would be to lack. Weakness means we don't have what it takes. It means we are neither sovereign nor omniscient, nor invincible. We are not in control. and We don't know everything. We can be stopped. Weakness means that we desperately need God. And the plea for my soul and for yours if you're listening is that we would not run from it, but that we would embrace our weaknesses, not despise them. The big distinction I do want to mention here is that Paul, when he's talking about weakness, he's not talking about sin. He's not talking about his sin. Well, to see the end of this passage, the summit is that he talks about, for my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's what Jesus says to Paul on his road to Damascus. Paul's not saying, for my gr- Jesus' grace is sufficient for me in my lust or in my anger. His grace is, he's not talking about sin. He's talking about, well, what he says in verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Not sin. And these things ring well in our minds, the thought of weaknesses and avoiding them. We have often thoughts like, if I weren't so shy, if my circumstances were just different, if my body wasn't so sick, if I had just a sharper mind, these sayings ring true in our mind. If this wasn't true of my life, then I can do such and such in my life, or I could do even such and such for Christ. Yet Paul is going to show you that often these things are the very tools, the sharpest scalpels in God's tool belt for surgery in our life to make us serviceable for him. Some context is that what's happening in 2 Corinthians is that Paul is refuting these people who have come in, infiltrated his church, and are now propagating a false gospel and even pointing to themselves to follow them. Paul calls these men super apostles. That these come in, these men come in and they're great at oratory communication. They're great at convincing people why they are sent from God. And they're not capital A apostles. They haven't been with the risen Jesus as Paul has, as John has, as Peter has, as James has. These people are deceivers, puffed up with spiritual pride, wanting to convince people to come along and to follow them because of their Jewishness, because of their heritage, and because what they're going through in terms of service to God can be a very convincing argument, especially when we see later in 2 Corinthians 10 that Paul is really good at written communication, but he's not so good at oral. And he's not so much to look at. Yet Paul says, these things I'm going to boast in. Paul's contextual weakness. These letters, it says, and if we go back, is this argument that he makes in 2 Corinthians 12 really starts in 2 Corinthians 10. But he says in 2 Corinthians 10, 10, he says, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, 
But his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Imagine planning a church. Imagine suffering so much for the sake of that church and loving them. Paul, later on after 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10, talks about how he, if I'm going to love you more, are you going to love me less? Paul loves these people. He, he gave his life to start this church. He preached the gospel here. People are coming to faith here, and he's writing to them because they're drifting into heresy, and their conduct is not in line with the gospel. And then they talk about him in a negative light. It would be so discouraging. And yet Paul is so loving Paul wants to minister to these people. And he actually says the very things that you don't want to listen to me because I'm, I'm not so much to look at. Most commentators say that Paul may have had a hunch because he was beaten so much or a limp. Some commentators even say that he had a, a speech impediment. We don't know if this is true, but these are all uh, speculations. But we do know this is that he probably wasn't a very good public communicator. And he wasn't so much to look at. And yet he says, I'm going to boast in these things so that the power of Christ would be manifest. Think about that. If there were things that people should never boast about, it would be your heritage, your service to God, and even your ability to communicate. And these are what these super apostles are doing. But Paul Well, not. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, he's talking about himself here, who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Here's where he gets into it. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would speak, be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Look at that humility. One thing that we know is that boasting, spiritual boasting, spiritual pride, which these super apostles are boasting about, revelation, spiritual experiences, their ability to communicate, what, where they're from, I'm Jewish, I'm from this tribe, is foolishness to Paul. Spiritual pride is oftentimes the most heinous pride there because it is masquerading and using the cross as something to puff yourself up But the way of the cross is is humility. Excuse me. It's humility. That encountering the gospel, we don't boast in things that make us strong. For Paul, an encounter with Christ called him to boast of those things that highlight his deficiencies, that highlight his weaknesses. And yet, even yet, these super apostles who have infiltrated and trying to convince the Corinthian church about themselves and to follow them, and now Paul is a deceiver, he has them beat even in what they are boasting about in themselves. If you look at 2 Corinthians eleven twenty two through 33, he says it. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. In other words, he's saying, I, this is crazy for me to even boast about this. 
But I'll talk, I'll, I'll say it, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. All of the next 10 verses are about his pedigree, about how much he is being hit with the hammer in his ministry experience. You want to talk about revelations? I've been caught up into the third heaven. If you want to talk about persecutions, well, let me tell you about them. You want to talk about Jewishness? I'm, I am in Second Corinthians, or excuse me, in Philippians 3, he talks about his pedigree. Born of the tribe of Benjamin, of the law, a Pharisee. Obedience, flawless. I've got you beat on every account, but I will boast not in those. I will boast in those that highlight my weaknesses. Imagine that. The question I have asked when I heard this and read this is, do we hear that much nowadays? Do we hear that? Imagine bringing Paul into a church and saying, we have the Apostle Paul. We have the, the mighty Apostle Paul. Let's, we're going to bring him in. We'd love to hear his, what God's been doing in his missions and in his life. Paul, come in here. And there's a great clap. And then we say, Paul, uh, we'd love to hear what's going on in your life. Would you, would you mind sharing with us in your ministry and in your life? Encourage us, brother. And Paul gets up. Not very impressive on the outward experience or the outward appearance. Probably not a great communicator. And he says, well, um, I was trapped in Damascus so much so that they were trying to trap me here by, the, by one of the, one of the uh, what he says, the governor under King Aratus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. I had to be lowered down by a basket. I was on the run for my life. I've been tired. I'm hungry. I'm constantly cold. I've been stoned. I've been beaten with rods. I've been shipwrecked and adrift at sea. I've been in danger from Jews and Gentiles. I've been betrayed for people within and outside of my churches. Oh, and don't forget, probably the most hardest one is my constant anxiety for the churches that I'm called to. Um, we don't hear things like this. Paul is actually discussing all of these events, all of these things that are highlighting not his strengths, but his weaknesses. It's the exact opposite of what these super apostles who come in boasting about their strengths. And it makes sense because it's setting up his premise that I shouldn't boast, but if I am gonna boast, let me boast of the things that make me small in your eyes, but highlight the gospel. There's a principle that has been lost in my life I think in some churches' life, in the West especially, and it's boasting in our weaknesses. Our flesh and even our culture, it caters to feed the desire to boast in what we can do, how we've been successful, how we've changed something in our work or in our personal life, and it's just gone great ever since we've changed it. And now success is happening. To the, to the flesh, and even for some Christians, it is so foreign. It is, we are often allergic to boasting about the things that show us our weaknesses, hardships, insults, calamities. It's foreign in our flesh and in our culture, especially in the West. We're often putting forth a resume and saying, this is why I am strong. Look at my spiritual resume. Look at my work resume. Look at, my, look at me. And Paul 
says, but if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast of those things that show my weaknesses. This may be why we are, as a country, I'm speaking, not speaking on a specific church, I'm speaking upon, I would say, the West in terms of Christianity, why we may be so rattled and confused when things like the coronavirus happen because we are so foreign to calamities, insults, hardships. But when they do come, the immediate reaction is, oh, well, that God is not good. God is not good. But yet, if we often look in our Bibles and church history, those who God uses, he sends much calamity, much insult, much hardship, much persecution. God is in the business of stripping those who he wants to use from ever believing that their strength is in and of themselves. And yet the irony is that those weaknesses that we feel and sense in our own life that if embraced, open up phenomenal ministry opportunities, if we would just recognize them and boast in them. Opportunities to minister, to be ministered to, such as, hey, I'm struggling, I need help, I am weak, my circumstances are so harrowing. And what we see is that the body of Christ comes to work. One thing I love about our church at Redeemer is that community of men and women who desire to serve others in the body of Christ. That happens when you humble ourselves and we admit our weaknesses that we do need help. One, one, one example would be meal trains. Our church, just an encouragement is that our church rallies together to help those who are undergoing a hardship, a, a new birth, whatever it may be. This is a beautiful thing. It's the body of Christ. And what it shows is the blessing of admitting our weaknesses and that we do need help. It also opens up opportunities for you to minister because you've been there, because you can empathize with those and their weaknesses. They can be your boast. And oh, how my, how people run to those who do not walk or talk about their strengths, but boast in their weaknesses. It's so attractive, probably because it's so foreign and rare, and rare in this life, because the flesh left to itself is so proud. Have you considered that in your life? How your handicaps and your weaknesses are the very tool that God is going to use to make you useful to minister to people in your family, your work, your neighborhood, your spheres in your life. The physical ailment that wakes you up in the middle of the night, it's a huge tool, possibly, that God is using in your life. I say that because I get woken up a lot in the middle of the night by children, needing a bottle or whatever. I'm tired often. But oh, how I see I, I can use that this weakness in my life to minister to those who also have kids and to encourage them and to be encouraged by them. Another thing I'm so challenged by regarding the Apostle Paul is that Paul does not desire to be a star. He desires to be a pastor. There's always a temptation in ministry, either vocational, bivocational, or ministry in general, to come in and wanting to highlight yourself, to say, look at my gifting, look at what I can do, Look at how much of a servant I am. Look at my ability to preach. Look at my ability to play music. Whatever it may be. And Paul is the exact opposite. Look at verse 6. He says, though if I should wish to boast, 
I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. In other words, I don't want you to keep looking at me. I don't want you to think highly of me. I want you to think highly of Christ. That's why I will boast in my weaknesses. Gosh, what a challenge. What a challenge to us in, in ministry. Oftentimes there are mixed motivations and this is an opportunity to see our weakness and, and sin and to repent. Because the only star in this church and in church at large is Christ. The humility of Paul is so challenging. Have you ever noticed in the New Testament the way Paul refers to himself? I just want to highlight this. This is why I love the Bible and why I love the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians fifteen nine. He says, I'm the least of the apostles. And then in Ephesians 3, verse 8, he says, I'm least of the saints. And then in 1 Timothy 1, 15, he says, I am chief of sinners. What's happening? What's happening is that the more Paul walks with Christ, the more he sees his sin. And the more he sees that there is really only one true star in the church. There's only one focal point. There's only one person that should be on stage in the limelight. And that is the gospel. That's Christ. Paul has a theology of weakness. But where does this come from? Is this new? This isn't, actually, this is not new. This isn't some new theological treatise, this idea of boasting in weakness. It's not new. It's actually the way that God has always worked and is always working. It's actually the way that God has always worked in the past and is always working. The gospel points to the fact that Christ became weak, like a lamb to the slaughter, Isaiah 53 says. Have you ever thought about that? What is a lamb? A lamb is the most vulnerable, weak, humble animal. Oftentimes, as it, as it is walked to either a shearing or its death. It has no idea what's going on. And if you've ever sheared a, a lamb, it's completely compliant. It doesn't move or wriggle or fight to get away. Oh, it is humble. It is weak. There's often a part in John 19 that highlights God, the omnipotent, omniscient, becoming weak for us. In John 19, right before Christ goes to his crucifixion, which he, as Isaiah 56 says, his face was set like flint to the cross. He says this in John 19, verses 8 through 11, as he is on trial with Pontius Pilate. He says, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to the law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters and again said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And this is what Jesus says. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Christ standing before Pontius Pilate, being tried, the son of God, omniscient, holy, all-powerful, in his finger could wipe everybody out, is not talking to only fulfill 
the prophecy of Isaiah 53 that he opened not his mouth. And Pontius Pilate says, I'm in the power of, I'm in the position of power. I'm the one who has authority over you. Speak to me or else. And Christ says, you have no authority unless it has been given to you from above. What does this mean? That Christ is here, not by accident, not by circumstance. He's here on purpose. This is all according to plan. What Christ could have said is, this situation is reversed. I should be judging you. Who are you to speak to the Son of God this way? Who are you to speak to to God at all? You are dead in your sin. I could easily condemn you, but he doesn't. No, this is according to plan. In other words, Jesus is here on his own volition. Jesus, this is all part of the plan to go to the cross. That is his destination. The cross. The scourging. The scoffing. The spitting. The hair plucked from his cheeks. The weary last march up the hill. The nailing of his body and limbs to a cross. The piercing of his hands. None of these things would have ever been had he not been the lamb. And all that to pay the price of your sin and my sin. So we see that he's not merely the lamb because he died on the cross. No, he went to the cross because he is the lamb. He is the lamb of God. God sent the lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. The gospel is the strong became weak in order to unite the weak to the strong by faith. This is the exact opposite of what religion requires. Religion requires that man would substitute himself for God But the gospel says that God substituted himself for man. Religion calls the strong. It appeals to the delusion that we are strong in and of ourselves. It says, if you want to get to God, be disciplined, be strong, and by your own determination, you can ascend to the top of the hill and be right with God. Bruce Wayne, to use a Batman analogy, Bruce Wayne must become Batman according to religion. But the gospel says something different. You can't do it. You need the only strong one to become weak in flesh, the person of Christ, his work on the cross, to take our sin, to unite us to him by faith. In other words, the gospel says that Batman became Bruce Wayne for us. The gospel showcases God's power and the apparent weakness of Christ on the cross. God's desire is to showcase his power, not in our lives being filtered like an Instagram post, but through weakness. Through weakness. This is the way our Lord came into the world. It's the way that he left it. And it's the way that he calls all of us to live as well. I hope that this is encouraging to us as Christians as you hear this. That, um, just think about it. If God is only looking for quarterbacks and we're the water boys on the bench, we have no hope. If he's always looking for the smartest, the brightest, the funniest, the most compassionate, the most beautiful, the hardest working, the best oral communicators, all the while we're putting the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable, then we have no hope. But that's not the way God works. And that's not the way God has worked throughout history and throughout the church and in your life. God loves to use the weak. It's actually not a way, it's the way he works. Paul, prior to his writing, this talks about, in 1 Corinthians, his own personal weakness and theirs. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, 
so that no human being, here it is, might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, what does weakness do? It strips us of any boast in and of ourselves and puts the boast of the Lord in our mouth. God constantly chooses and works this way. Tim Keller says, God constantly chooses and works through the second sons, the ones without social power. He chooses Abel rather than Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob rather than Esau, Joseph over Reuben. And when he works with women, he does not choose women with cultural power of beauty and sexuality. He does this saving work through old infertile Sarah, not young Hagar, through unloved and unattractive Leah, not lovely Rachel. God repeatedly refuses to allow his gracious activity to run along the expected lines of worldly influence and privilege. He puts in the center the person whom the world would put on the periphery. Who would have chose Paul? Well, he's a Jew. He's also a Pharisee. And he was the first, ordered the first persecution and martyr of the church. Heck no. Who would choose Timothy? He's too young. He's not wise. Who would have chose David? He's too short. He doesn't look kingly. He's too skinny. He's a weakling. And who would have chose Matthew? He's a tax collector. We can go on and on and on, but this is actually the very way that God seems to be working in people's lives, not highlighting their physical, emotional, intellectual strengths, but using the very thing that they are so conscious of, their weakness. God doesn't want your perceived strengths. He wants your inadequacies. He wants your disabilities, your sufferings, your fears, your anxieties, and even your failures in the past. And more, he wants you to boast in them, not your strengths. Because we see that Paul's strength, and that's my last point, is Christ. Mind you, the equation is not Paul's weakness plus God's strength equals Paul's power. Or my weakness plus God's strength equals my power. No, it's Paul's weakness plus God's strength equals God's glory. The question we may ask is not so much what is weakness, we've looked at that, but really what is true strength? What is strength? The world would say strength is the ability to do it on your own, to be independent. But the Bible says the opposite. Strength is actually reliance, trust, dependence. These are all words that characterize strength. Being on your knees. In the Bible, that is strength. Because that is actually being in touch with reality. It is far more delusional to think that we are absolutely 100% self-made. It is actually more true to say, God is sovereign over my strengths and weaknesses. Because he is creator and I am creation. That is more in touch with the reality. That's why Jeremiah 23 through 24 says this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, not that the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. God seems to be pushing us all out of the false notion of strength into God's definition of strength, which is utter dependence and reliance. Only when Christ 
is our strength? Can we rejoice in suffering? Because our hope is not in this life, but in Christ. And when our hope is in Christ and not in this life, we can rejoice in what the world would absolutely go weep about. Just think about this. This, this principle runs true in our own personal walks with the Lord. Isn't it true that our most intimate and powerful, fruitful times with God are when we are brought low, when life seems to be rocky, when we don't know the answers to our questions, and when we can't tell you what the next day may bring? Isn't it true that when we believe that only when the looks like the bottom is going to go out, cave in, does our heart look to Christ, the solid rock? Our weaknesses push to the only eternal strength in the Lamb of God who became weak for us that he would unite us to himself by faith. Let me close with this. There was a woman named Henrietta Mears who was a Christian educator. She was a brilliant woman and she went on to basically shape and write most of Sunday school curriculum in the 20th century. She had a profound influence on Billy Graham. She had a profound influence on Bill Bright, the starter of crew ministries. She even had a profound influence on Richard Halverson, who was the chaplain of the U.S. Senate. And Henrietta Mears was diagnosed with myopia very young, which is a disease of the eyes. And eventually she would later, later on in her life, about go blind. It was a very painful disease. And at a very young age, she prayed like Paul says. She say, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it, would, it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Henrietta, like Paul, who was given a thorn by the Lord to prevent himself from being proud spiritually, also asked God to remove this. God, remove this from my life, and he did not. And yet, later on in Henrietta Mears' life, she was asked, what is her greatest spiritual asset? And she says this, I believe my greatest spiritual asset throughout my entire life has been my failing eyesight, for it has kept me absolutely dependent on God. <laughs> Friends, in a time like this, Embrace the strength that's in your significant weaknesses. The weaknesses you feel right now are actually the precise instrument that God is using to make you serviceable in his kingdom. What is it for you? I know that there is one. Paul was very content with the opposite of what the world would be content with. Why? For the sake of Christ, he says in verse 10. So on behalf of Christ... I can be content with what the world would be hysterical about. For the sake of Christ, I can be content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What in your life is bringing you to your knees? Is it a physical condition? Is it a marriage? Marriage, by design, will showcase our weaknesses and our sins. Is it sickness, something that will not go away, chronic? Could be an earache, cavity. Could be something much harder, like anxiety or depression. Is it a parenting issue, a child that is not responding to you? 
I could go on and on with weaknesses that bring us so low. But all of these can be sufficient and are sufficient to show that the grace of God is sufficient in your life. We must resist the false notion the world and your flesh feeds for you to boast in your own wisdom, ingenuity, and beauty in self, but boast in your weaknesses that highlight the grace of God and that God's grace is sufficient in Christ. For this, when I am weak, then I am strong for Paul, is the flourishing life. That that is the posture of the good life. It is the upside down kingdom of God. What the world despises, oftentimes brings so much glory to God. Embrace your weaknesses. They're not only from the Lord, but they're intentional from him. I'll close with this. One of my favorite hymns is Jesus Paid It All. The first line says this. I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and that, God, you are good to bring us low. You're good to rattle our cage. You're good to show us that the flourishing life is a cruciform life. And you're good to show us that our hope is not in our job, in our family, in our health, in our house, in our, our neighbors or in our friendships, but our hope is in you. All of our hope is in you. In the midst of coronavirus, our hope is in you. In the midst of cancer, our hope is in you. In the midst of persecution, our hope is in you. God, help us to believe that. Help us for that to override our emotions that often make a case that our weaknesses are plagues from you rather than instruments to bring us closer to you. Lord, I pray for those who are experiencing, again, hardship because of coronavirus. God, would we be a church that blesses them and ministers to them? God, for those who are experiencing weakness, would they have the humility to ask for help? And we, be who have gone through weaknesses as a church body, have the humility to bless and to encourage and to meet needs for them. God, I pray for our nation, God, that this would bring coronavirus, if it is your will, we're being about revival in the church. But God, we would be stripped of the delusion that we are strong, but that we would, like Paul, say, when I am weak, then... I am strong.